glad to have all of you here today. Um, I'm sure all of us sent very moving greeting cards or some sort of gift to our moms this morning, like uh, this one, handmade, thank you mom for making me food so I don't die. Don't you love that? <laughs> and then here's the Mother's Day apology list. Here's all the things that uh, an adult or young adult might apologize for. Um, I'm going to have to turn around and read it this side. Making you take care of the hamster. Quitting everything. I apologize in general for ages 12 through 17. (laughs) Keeping you awake for roughly five years. Drawing on your furniture. Refusing to sit at the table like a normal child. The incident with the car. Befriending and or dating bad influences. That weird phase of pretending to be an animal. My mess, emotional and or literal. Constant pleas for a pet, pool, sibling, or limo. Refusing to bathe without a fight. Look how far I've come, Mom. I couldn't have done it without you. And then we have this, Mom, I'm sorry. I'm the reason you can no longer wear a bikini. (laughs) And how about this? I live in a madhouse run by a tiny army that I made myself. I like that one. Yeah, Amy loves that one. Yeah, yeah. And then there's this card that, again, an adult might give. Six years, mom knows everything. When you're eight years old, mom knows a lot. When you're 12 years old, mom doesn't know everything. When you're 14 years old, mom knows nothing. When you're 18 18 years old, mom is outdated. But when you're 25, maybe mom knows. When you're 35, before deciding, let's ask mom. And then when you're 45, I wonder what mom thinks. Isn't it amazing how it changes, isn't it? Huh? And then there's here, here's the gift that, uh, that I wanted to give my mom this year, but I, I couldn't bring myself to do it. Mom, I love how we don't even need to say it out loud that I'm your favorite child. <laughs> so in case you didn't get a good Mother's Day, you've got ideas for next year, that you can give gifts or screen uh, or um, uh, cards and things like that. Our children learn from us, don't they? And they grow in part due to our influence. Then, of course, there are things that mothers learn in a unique way from the experience of having children. Just from having children, moms learn things. For example, we learn as moms, don't we, that a three-year-old's voice is louder than 200 adults in a crowded restaurant. You learn when you're a mom that when you hear the toilet flush and the words, "Uh uh-oh, it's already too late. You learn that Play-Doh and microwave should never be used in the same sentence. You learn that garbage bags do not make good parachutes. You learn that you probably do not want to know what that odor is. And you learn that you should always look in the oven before you turn it on. Anybody experience that? Hmm? So motherhood, parenthood can be very instructive. I recall Bill Sanders, TCF's first pastor, preaching often on Mother's Day and on Father's Day. Now, the Mother's Day message would always be very gushing, kind of like what we heard from Joel this morning about how wonderful mothers are, how we should love them, how we should honor them. Of course, that's all a good thing. That's all real and true. If you were a mother at TCF on Mother's Day when Bill Sanders preached, you couldn't help but leave TCF feeling very affirmed and loved. And of course, again, that's a good thing. Nothing wrong with that. But The interesting thing to me was that somehow Father's Day messages from Bill always seemed a little bit different. You guys remember that, those of you who were here back in the day? 
Father's Day was a lot more about challenging men to be godly husbands, to be godly fathers. If I had to summarize Bill's message on Father's Day, it might be something like this. Men, get your act together. Fathers, follow God hard and live like the godly men that you've been called to be, that you're supposed to be. Die to self and be that husband and father that every wife and child should want, would want. So if you were a father at TCF on Father's Day when Bill Sanders preached, you couldn't help but leave here feeling convicted, hopefully motivated too, to allow the Holy Spirit to help you do better as a husband and a father. Now, I don't know about you, but I remember hearing the very clear difference between those two kinds of messages from Bill and thinking, that's not quite fair, that the women get to leave feeling affirmed and built up while the men left feeling convicted. So this morning, we live in a very politically correct culture, don't we? I want to provide a little bit of equality for the women. It's about equal time. It's about equal challenges. If it's important enough on Father's Day to challenge the men to live up to what God made them to be, it's important enough for the mothers too. Now, Actually, if you think about it, in reality, as we move forward, you'll see this here this morning. What we're going to think about today certainly applies to mothers, but it all applies equally to fathers. And as we'll see, it's applicable well beyond our immediate families for all of us. But the first thing we're going to look at this morning is the front lines. Now, you know what the front lines are? You've heard that phrase, the front line or the front lines. It's a battle term. And the front lines are the place where the battle is taking place first. It's where all the action is. In battle, it's the closest place to where the enemy is. But in our everyday conversation, the front line might mean the most important or influential position. The front line is, here's a dictionary definition, of relating to or involving the forefront in any action, activity, or field. A frontline TV reporter, for example, a frontline leader, a frontline executive. Now, most of you know Mike Bros, for example. Mike is on the front line of mental health and homeless advocacy and assistance. And here's Mike doing his thing the other night on Channel 6. You don't have to feel bad to not hand money out your car window to somebody that's standing on the street corner with a sign. That, that with this program, there is a better way. Okay, so there's Mike on the front line doing his thing on the front line. So we all have these circles of influence. Mike's just an example. I could name several others here in this body that are on the front line uh, of various kinds of ministry. Um, it starts with our home, though, doesn't it? It all starts with our home. Our home is the front line of our influence. That's true of all of us, not just the moms, but the dads and even the kids. It's where the battle to demonstrate the gospel at work in our lives as believers begins. So this week on Mother's Day, we're looking at the front line of the gospel, the home where the gospel is first lived out. It's true for all of us, whether we're mothers, whether we're dads or children. It's true whether we live alone or with family. Our families are the gospel front line. That's the title of today's message. Today is actually the beginning of a two-part message. We mentioned that we have these circles of influence. The first circle, the one we're looking at this week, is the home and the family. Now, the second circle is the church, and we'll explore that a little bit more next week. And we'll see how much of the things that we're going to look at today also apply next week when we look at it. And the second circle is at church. 
And we'll also see how what we're going to look at next week is going to apply this week. There's, they're, they're interactive. They work with each other. They apply to the first circle and the second circle. And of course, there's other circles too, right? The third circle might be our neighbors and our friends, our work acquaintances, or our schoolmates, those people that we interact with on a regular basis. The fourth circle is the rest of the world, the people out there that we only occasionally encounter. All of us live to some degree in all of these circles. But again, the first circle, the gospel front line, is home and family. And how we live out the truth of the gospel at home will impact how we live out those truths in our ever-expanding circles, the second circle, the third circle, the fourth circle. We see that truth illustrated in what Scripture gives as the qualification for elders. We see that in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, where it says, He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. And then it says, For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? So the principle here applies at home, it applies in other contexts, and it doesn't just apply to elders. In other words, here's the idea. If we don't live out the implications of the gospel at home, how can we ever have any ability, let alone credibility, in living out the gospel outside of our home? That's how we can make this Mother's Day message apply to all of us this morning, even if you're sitting here this morning and you're not a parent or you're not a mom, it applies to all of us. Now, certainly mothers are at the forefront of this gospel front line. But we often don't think of the gospel, and we don't think of the natural implications of the gospel when we think of how we relate to our immediate family. For example, let me read one passage of Scripture, and what do you think of first when you read a passage like this from Ephesians chapter 4? where Paul wrote, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So when I read bearing with one another in love in this passage, my first thoughts are often not of the first circle. I think more of the second, third, and fourth circle. Maybe you're different, maybe I'm weird, but I think that's probably true of a lot of us. And yes, of course, bearing with one another in love certainly does apply outside the first circle. But note verse 3 of this. Let me read it again. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. It's primarily referring to the first two circles, living out the gospel at home and in our church. Think about this. The unity of the Spirit... In the bond of peace can only apply to brothers and sisters in Christ. You can't have unity in the Spirit with unbelievers. It can only apply to our brothers and sisters in Christ. There's no unity of the Spirit or bond of peace outside the relationships that we have with one another in Christ. That's not to say we can't have, that's not to say we shouldn't have very real, very vital relationships with those outside the church. But of course, all those one anotherisms that we see in Scripture apply first, first and foremost to our roles as husbands, as wives, as mothers, as fathers, as children, as siblings with one another in the home with our own family. There was an article that I read that uh, kind of spurred my thinking for some of the things that we're going to hear this morning. 
by a pastor named Chap Bettison. You'd never heard of him, so don't, you don't have to feel like, oh, gee, I'd never heard of him because you didn't. He highlights the gospel front line, and he tells this story of a couple that was in his office for marriage counseling. And as he listened to this couple kind of bear their souls and share their problems with him, he quickly came to the realization that what they really wanted from him was to change the other one. Fix him, she was tacitly saying. Fix her was his hope. But of course, a clear implication of the gospel is that we are all sinners. So because of that, we must always examine our own heart first. So this pastor quoted this verse to them from Matthew chapter 7, verses 3 through 5. Let me read that. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So this passage reveals some important things as we think about this first circle, our home and our family. First of all, did you ever think about applying this verse to your husband or your wife? I can't say that I have. Or even your children or your siblings. I generally think about the church when I hear this passage, right? But you know what? When we're both believers, my wife is also my sister in Christ. You ever think about that? When we're both believers, my wife, our spouses, are also our brothers and our sisters in Christ. When we're all in Christ, our sons and our daughters are also brothers and sisters in Christ. So first and foremost, our relationships with each other are defined by our status in Jesus Christ. And that's true in the home. It's true here in the church. Now, that doesn't negate the very special the very unique relationship of marriage or motherhood or fatherhood or siblings. But when we think of our husbands, when we think of our wives, our sisters, our brothers, our children first, as sinners saved by grace, just like us, that should make a difference in how we relate to them on the gospel front line. So the implications, that's what we're looking at this morning. What does it imply? What does the gospel imply In this passage, it implies that I'm a sinner too. I'm a sinner too. There may be a speck in someone else's eye, but first, I must examine my own heart because there's probably a log in my eye. When we allow the Lord to reveal and to expose the deep sinfulness of sin, we see it first in our own hearts. We can't help but see that if we're honest with each other, if we're honest with ourselves. And when we see it first in our own hearts, we aren't so quick to want to change someone else. For when you're deeply aware of your sin and of what an affront it is to God's holiness and of how impossible it is for him, for God, to respond to this sin with anything other than furious wrath, you can only be overwhelmed by how amazing grace is. Only those who are truly aware of their sin can truly cherish grace. Not just grace for me, but grace for others. And of course, the gospel is all about God's grace. The Apostle Paul told us about our priorities in our lives as believers. 
He said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. So Paul is telling us here about the one overarching, transcendent truth that should define our lives as we live out the gospel with one another. Christ died for our sins. This is of first importance, Paul said. The priority of priorities. This changes everything. It changes not just who we are, but how we relate to one another. And how we relate to one another starts in this gospel front line, that very first circle, our homes and our families. Note, too, that this passage in Matthew 7 that we just read doesn't say we're never to help take the speck out of someone else's eye. But when we have a log in our own eyes, in other words, we're blinded to our own faults. That's what that means. When we have a log in our own eye, we're blinded to our own faults. We can't see clearly enough to be of any real help in getting a speck out of somebody else's eye. You can't see. How can you get a little tiny speck out of someone's eye? All this to say, this passage of Scripture is an outgrowth, an implication of the gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ who died for our sins, which Paul said is of first importance. And because of that, because the gospel front line is in the home and it's our family relationships, this is just as important, maybe even more important in the home as it is in the other circles outside. So my first field of service is the home. Moms, dads, our spouses, our children, our siblings, they are the nearest neighbors we have. They're the nearest neighbors we have. And what does Jesus say about our neighbors? Love your neighbor as yourself. So how we act at home matters to God. We noted a moment ago that this is part of the qualification for elders. But we also recognize that the reality of how we act at home matters to God is not just for leaders, even though that's spelled out for elders. Jonathan Edwards was a president of Princeton. He was a prolific preacher and writer, and he said this, every Christian family ought to be, as it were, a little church consecrated to Christ and wholly influenced and governed by his rules. So we instinctively know this to be true, but we don't think about it this way very often. And if we're honest with ourselves, we find that home is often the most challenging place to live out the gospel of grace. Think about this. You'll say things to your spouse or your children that you'd never say to somebody in that second circle or that third circle or certainly not in that fourth circle. I've thought about this before, how ironic that we can behave one way in the home with our words and with our deeds that we would never behave outside the home with the most important people in our lives, with the ones who love us the most and the ones that we love the most. Now, maybe I've thought about this too. Maybe part of the reason why we're able to do that is that maybe we feel just a little bit more secure in the love of the people in our home than we do from others. That is, we know instinctively that others would reject us if we spoke to them in that way. But the truth remains that we express anger to our spouses that we hide from others. Laziness others don't see is obvious to them. 
Family relationships, which God intended to be a blessing, can become a war zone. In his grace, God is using those close quarters to shine a floodlight on my own idols. He is revealing my true heart condition in order to mold me into the image of his son. That's what it's about. Thanks be to God. He, just doesn't, he doesn't just convict us of our sins and leave us there. He makes a way for us to change. He forgives us, and then he moves us forward in his grace. We see in Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. Let's apply this, too, as we think about the first circle. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So moms and dads, we can walk in the Spirit. We can exhibit the fruits of the Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit lives inside of us when we are in Christ. We can put our selfish desires to death. We can serve our families because the Holy Spirit makes us able. And how do we do this? We do this little by little. We do this one choice at a time. Yes, as parents, we're training our children. But it's important to remember that God is always, always training us too. No matter how old we are, no matter how long we've walked with the Lord, we've been believers, God uses the dailiness of life. That's a phrase I remember from a Bruce Clutter sermon years ago. God uses the dailiness of life to train my heart to love him wholeheartedly and to love my nearest neighbors as myself in this first circle, the gospel front line. God is using the challenges of my daily life to teach me to deny myself, to take up my cross, and to follow him. And since one implication of the gospel is that God not only saves us and justifies us, but also sanctifies us, that is, he changes us more and more into his image, I trust that he is using these things in my life to change me, to change me. I trust that he's using these things to change me in ways that I can see clearly and ways that I might not even be able to see yet. That happens a lot too. Things happen and we don't understand why. I remember Owen Carey once saying how the little things are what define who we are and make us into who God wants us to become. He said, loving your wife often starts by putting the cap back on the tube of toothpaste. Little things, right? I'm reminded of a movie called The Karate Kid. Anybody seen The Karate Kid? It's been around, uh, it's probably a 25, 30-year-old movie. Daniel is the main character. He's the karate kid of the title. And he's bullied and picked on. So he goes to a man named Mr. Miyagi. And he asks him to teach him karate so that he can defend himself. So Mr. Miyagi agrees. And here's how he starts his lessons with Daniel. Walk on the road. Hmm? Walk right side, safe. Walk left side, safe. Walk middle, sooner or later, get the squish, just like grip. Here, karate, same thing. Either you karate do, yes, 
を空手ドゥの。言う空手ドゥ、ゲッソー。just like grip。understand?。yeah, I understand。now ready。First wash all the car, then wax. Wax. Well, what do I have to wash all the car? Remember, dear, no question. Yeah, but I... Right. <laughs> wax on, right hand. Wax off, left hand. Wax on, wax off. Breathe in through nose, out the mouth. Wax on, wax off. Don't forget to breathe. Very important. Wax on, wax off. Wax on, wax off. Hey, where these guys come from? Wax on. Detroit! Wax off. Wax on, wax off. La, 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 la. Wax on. So Daniel is Mr. Miyagi's personal slave for a better part of a day till late at night. And he's washing and waxing his cars and he's painting his fence and he's sanding the floor. And Daniel's exhausted and he's frustrated and he comes to Mr. Miyagi and he says, didn't you promise to teach me karate? He asked Mr. Miyagi. So Mr. and Miyagi have this encounter a little later. Sand the floor. How did you do that? Shut up! Sand the floor. Stand up. Show me sand the floor. Sand the floor. Sand the floor. Big sucker. Sand the floor. Sand the floor. Uh, show me wax on, wax off. Hey! Wax on, wax off. Wax on, wax off. Hey, wax on, hat. Wax off, hat. Concentrate. Look my eye. Lock a hand. Thumb inside. Wax on, hat. Wax off, hat. Wax on, hat. Wax off. Wax on, wax off. Show me paint the fence, up, down. Up, down, up, down. Other side, look eye, always look eye. Show me paint the house, side, side. Lock wrist, side, side. Side, side. Yes. Show me wax on, wax off. Yes! Yes! 
Show me pen to fence. Cash! Face! Death! Death! Show me side to side. Yes! 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 Show me sand of floor. Cash! Face! 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 catch some things there. First of all, in the first clip, did you catch Mr. Miyagi says, I say you do. No questions. Right? And then, did you catch how he learned and grew from the little things? Sometimes, like Daniel, we don't realize what we're learning. When we're going through it, we don't realize what we're learning. Did you see the light bulb go on in Daniel's eyes when he realized that all the work he'd done was moving him toward a very specific purpose and skill, a specific end? He was learning to defend himself. That was the first skill he needed to learn in, in karate. The same can be said of our motherhood, moms. The same thing can be said of our motherhood. Yes, we have a significant responsibility to raise up our children in the fear of the Lord. They're on loan to us from God because they belong to him, and ultimately he's the only one who can save them and shape him, them, although he does choose to use us as parents. But motherhood, parenting, relationships are about more than me. They're about more than me. They're more than what I do. They're about more than what I do. They're just as much about what God is doing in me. Martin Luther agreed. He said, marriage is a better school for the character than any monastery, he wrote, for it is here that your corners are rubbed off. Isn't that true? I think the same is true of motherhood, parenting, or any other significant relationship, close relationship in our lives. So how are we living out the gospel at home as mothers or as fathers or as children or as siblings? How are we living out the practical implication of the gospel in our other most significant relationships in our lives? Well, one way we can measure that is comparing our actions and our hearts to what Scripture has to say about our relationships with one another. How do we measure up to these passages of Scripture? For example, 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient and kind. It is not rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. Now let's put that in that first circle now. Let's put that on in the gospel front line and realize how it implies the gospel in our homes. How about Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29? Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such is good for building up others. And how about James chapter 1, verses 19 and 20? Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. We could go on. We could go on with a lot of verses because Scripture is full of all these one another relationship kind of verses, and they have implications for us in all of our relationships. 
And we'll look at this idea more next week in the context of the second circle, the church. But moms and dads, we need to see our children as not just our responsibility to train and teach, they are that, but as God's tools to change us and shape us and to mold us into Christ-likeness. Trust that God is working in small or large family trials to conform you to Jesus. Trust that although your kids are not perfect, they're perfect for you. Think about this. Your spouse or your kids will never be perfect. They're not perfect today. They never will be. This is a reminder that your spouse and your kids are sinners like you because you're not perfect today and you won't be next week. But they are perfect for you. They are just what you need. They are what you need to shape you into his image. We need to resist the urge to blame our reactions on others. No one causes us to sin. Our kids don't. Our spouses don't. We need to remember how practical the Word of God is. When you do a word search on the phrase one another or variations of that, you can find nearly 40 passages in the New Testament that give very clear instruction on how we are to treat and relate to one another in our family. And again, we don't often apply these to our family or our immediate family, that first circle. We often think of these verses as outside that first circle. We can read all kinds of passages of Scripture with our family in mind. For example, if we read the whole of James chapter 1, we read just a few verses a moment ago, if we read that with our families in mind, we're reminded of what? We're reminded we need wisdom. We're reminded that we need to remain steadfast in trial. We're reminded again that we need to be slow to speak and quick to listen. We're reminded that we need to be a doer of the word and we need to control our tongues. That's all just in James 1. And all of those things apply in this first circle, the gospel front line. And finally, moms and dads, we need to be aware that our kids are watching. That's a scary thing. Our kids are watching. All of us, but young people especially, have very well-developed hypocrisy detectors. Do what I say, not what I do, is not a good message. It's not a helpful message, and it will never win anything. Another thing I remember Bill Sanders saying in his Father's Day messages, and I'm going to lay it on you mothers today, There are three things we need to remember when it comes to our children. Example, example, and example. You remember Bill saying that? Probably said it more than once. Our kids want to see not only if we practice what we teach, but they want to see if the challenges and pressures of our lives make any real difference in how we respond and how we live our lives. So home is the first and maybe the hardest place We live in the light of God's grace. So as we close, I want to introduce a foundation for next week. And it also applies, what I'm going to say in a moment here, it applies to family life, the first circle. It's a phrase I came across in my study for this week, and it's the thing that inspired me to turn this into a two-part message. Not entirely related, but definitely connected, as you'll see next week. The phrase that I want to highlight you Uh, highlight to you now is called covenant solidarity. It's a principle of unity that doesn't come from any shared personality traits or mutual hobbies or mutual interests. It's a principle of unity that comes entirely from a shared interest in and love 
for Jesus Christ. You get that? So when we come together as families, we're different, aren't we? We're different. You can have two kids or six kids. Every one of them's different. We don't all share the same likes and dislikes. We don't like the same food. We don't like to do the same things, right? So where is that solidarity? How do we stick together? We stick together because we're in Christ. It's a covenant. It's a covenant. We stick together because we're in Christ. Same reason that husbands and wives stick together. You make the covenant of marriage with one another. And so because you are married in Christ, you are going to stay together regardless of whether you like the same things, etc., etc. You get that? It's the tie that binds. It's a Jesus-centered form of relationship. And it results in a total and undying devotion, not just to Jesus. That's implied. But it's an undying devotion to those for whom he died. And who are the first ones that we relate to for whom he died? Our family, that first circle, right? Without this covenant solidarity, families will struggle at best and they'll divide at worst. So next week we're going to look at how this idea applies not only to families but to churches, churches like TCF. But for now, let's remember that our families are the first circle of this gospel front line, if you will, in our lives as followers of Jesus. So let's ask the Lord together how this truth should affect our lives. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that the gospel has implications for all of life and that the gospel has clear implications for the gospel front line, the first circle, our families. If we're mothers, the implications have to do with our relationship with our children, our relationship with our spouse. If we're fathers, the same is true. If we're kids, the, relation, the reality of the gospel, Father, should impact the way we relate to our siblings, the way we relate to our mother and our father. Honor your father and your mother. Lord, we're thankful that you give us clarity. You give us guidance in your word. Help us, Heavenly Father, to apply more and more of the gospel to our home life, to our families, in such a way, Father, that you would indeed use these things to mold us and shape us, Father, make us more Christ-like. And, Father, bring that true covenant solidarity to our families, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Bill, for bringing a challenging word for moms, for dads, for everyone, the gospel front line. I'd like to mention 